We are in this jam where we need to raise, and we are burning cash, a lot of cash, because we scaled relatively quickly. We're facing intense competition. VC markets are dried up. We lost our board member. There's this board meeting, and the board meeting, it was basically like, TK, you got you to cut down to 15 people. And we were at 70 people at the time. And the board meeting actually ended with each of the board members giving me a hug. They're just like, all right, you got to figure out how to do this. You got to cut down to 15 and just take it from there. And so they gave me a hug, each of them. And my lawyer, who was taking the minutes, was there. He just kind of looks at me and is like, uh, okay, well, you let me know how we can help. And so they leave. And, you know, I think, I think we had a great board. But at that moment, uh, as a founder, I was kind of like, I don't need a hug. Girl, I need a check. Welcome to Array Podcast, the platform to discover hacks and skills you need at different stages of building your business. I'm your host, Shruti Gandhi, founder and managing partner of Array Ventures. Array Ventures invests in founders focused on solving problems, leveraging big data, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. Visit us on array.vc. If you look up the word hustle in Wikipedia, you might find a section on today's founder, TK. TK shares his honest thoughts on how he successfully sold his company, Taudap, to Marketo in 2017. This did not come without challenges. Even while he was growing fast and at a $5 million in recurring revenue, difficulties came from a stock market crash in early 2016. Emergence of highly funded competitors in the category made it tough to fundraise, and TK had to lay off a large portion of his company. This is a perfect example of making lemonade from lemons. TK takes us through how he came out on the other side, despite opposing external forces. I, I don't think too many people know this because in the news articles, they say Tata was acquired. And in the news articles, it'll say uh, they went through some layoffs. What people don't actually know is it was a little over a year ago. It was like early 2016. And this was around the time where LinkedIn and Tableau both took a nosedive in the public markets. It went down like 35% or something like that. And VCs were like, whoa, what's going on? It might be Armageddon. And so no one was writing any checks. That was right at the time where we went into fundraising mode. And <laughs> <Perfect>. we, <laughs> yeah, it was great. And right at that time, through that first half of the year, uh, the VC market kind of froze a bit. SaaS multiples went down. We badly needed to raise. We lost uh, our lead board member. He was moving on from the firm that invested. And I remember there was this one board meeting. And at that time, we were about a five, six million dollar run rate business. Five million. Uh, then we were six. Five million dollar run rate business. Uh, 10 to 15,000 salespeople logging in in the morning every day to do their jobs and use us. Uh, so, fair, you know, fairly, there's a scale there. There's some business there and heavy competition. Like everyone noticed that Andreessen Horowitz invested in the sales enablement, sales acceleration space. And so a number of companies got funding right after us from a number of other VC firms. <clears throat> and we are in this jam where we need to raise and we are burning cash, a lot of cash, because we scaled relatively quickly. And mm -hmm. we're facing intense competition. VC markets are dried up. We lost our board member. There's this board meeting, and the board meeting it, it was basically like, TK, you got, you got to cut down to 15 people. 
we were at 70 people at the time. And the board meeting actually ended with each of the board members giving me a hug. They're just like, all right, you got to figure out how to do this. You got to cut down to 15 and just take it from there. And so they gave me a hug, each of them. And my lawyer who was taking the minutes was there. And he just kind of looks at me and he's like, uh, okay, well, you let me know how we can help. Oh, man. And so I said, okay, cool. Like, we'll figure this out. And so they leave. And, you know, I think I think we had a great board. But at that moment, uh, as a founder, I was kind of like, I don't need a hug. I need a check. <laughs> and uh, and so I said, you know, I'm just going to – I need to go process this. So I actually kind of <laughs> sent off a couple of emails, cleared up my schedule, and called a friend. And I said, hey, like, let's just go catch a movie. And we went to this dine-in movie theater in the Mission. It's one of those, like, let me just, like, put hit pause on life for a second. So I've got to figure out how to save the company, and I've got to figure out how it can't be 15 people, because at a $5 million run rate with that many people relying on the business and our pipeline, like you just the weight of the company is too great for 15 people, unless you just shut things down. Yeah. Um, and so I'm watching this movie, and I'm just kind of just trying to idle my mind, and I get this text message. And I get this text message, and it's from my mom, and she says, hey, can you call me? I said, okay, I'll call her a little bit later. Then I get a text message again, and it's from my brother, and he says, hey, dad's in ER. Oh, my God. You need to get on a flight to New York right away. And I say, okay, uh, this is happening. So basically, I said, I tell my friend, like, hey, listen, uh, I've got to go and take care of a few things. So I'm sorry. I'm leaving in the middle of the movie. I'll catch you later. And basically, I kind of headed back home and started to figure out flights, started to figure out where my dad's at and stabilize that situation. And right at that time, uh, we started getting a call around some M&A activity. And that I had, it was like all happening at once. And we essentially, like while I was getting on a plane, we started negotiations with a merger with another company mm. because... Uh, that made sense because there was a lot of competitors in the space and they kind of propped their head up and said, oh, actually, we are interested. And that delayed the whole 15 cut thing. And I got to the hospital and my fortune, my dad got better. But it was just like in that very specific moment, you're that's where, like, I think you really figure out what founders are made of. And I think founders are a unique group of people where it's the hands are steadier at times of crisis. Uh, more than a surgeon during surgery. Like, if something kicks in and you're just like, okay, well, we're going to have to deal with this and let's figure out how we deal with it. And it was the scariest moments of my life. And by by no means was that month the least scariest. And for the, those of you that don't know the story, we actually didn't cut to 15 and we figured out a way to cut. We did do cuts. We did two layoffs. But through the second half of that year, we actually ended up cutting down from 70 to 30 people, and we reorganized our business, increased our prices, and actually ended up with the largest quarter, Q4, the end of that year, ended up being the largest in company history. Wow. We uh, quadrupled our deal sizes. We brought on uh, large, large customers like Siemens and GE and CA and SAP, has, they came on as customers. And this was all in the same year. After, uh, I basically told the board, like, no, I'm not cutting down to 15. That just doesn't make any sense. 
and negotiated a number of things and essentially like just turned around the company from the dead um, in the course of eight months. And then, of course, like at the end of it, uh, we ended up with a number of term sheets and we ended up going with Marketo as the buyer uh, because it made the most sense and sold the company Marketo and, and announced it at their user conference. So that's phenomenal. Like, and thanks for sharing. The question is, how do you find what you're made of um, and how do yeah. you, you know, and how does an investor see that in you as well? So it's both ways, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that a couple of things. Um, one, I think you as a founder yourself, you yourself don't even know what you're capable of. Mm-hmm. Um, forget the investor for a second. Like you going into it and starting a company and you like, if I were to show you a list of all the things that could go wrong from starting the company to an amazing outcome, um, you would look at that list and I would tell you that all of these things are going to happen. Uh, do you still want to do it? And at the beginning of the journey, I think any human being would look at it and say, oh, God, like they would at least have a second thought. <laughs> um, but I think that for founders, having gone through it and seeing that list, that same list, and seeing it all crossed off, each of those bad things that could have happened that happened crossed off, but you still get to a successful outcome um, or some sort of learning or something, um, would do it again. and saw that they grew in that process. Mm -hmm. And so I think that when you bring in a founder himself or herself into the mix, you don't really know. And when when you take on the investor's role and you look at the person and you ask yourself, will this person actually get it done or be successful or do they have the willpower to succeed? You don't really know. But I think that what I look for is uh, evidence of some sort that they stuck to it. And whether they graduated college and stuck to four years or they worked at the family business when they were 12 and stuck to it and helped the family or they were in a sports team and stuck to it. I think that's the core difference between people that make it and don't. It's people that have some sort of belief and optimism and stick to things. Um, versus the ones that don't. That's uh, profound. But I think that's maybe what, why second-time founders, you know, are looked upon favorably in some, sometimes, or, or, or serial entrepreneurs generally, because knowing, you know what, you know how to read them, basically. Um, and you know what you're capable of yourself, right? Um, yeah. but it is an interesting question that you didn't know yourself, uh, what you are capable of, but let's just talk about that then. So what happened <laughs> from start to finish six years, um, from you, let's start with like, wow, how did you come up with this idea of enabling the sales force? Right. Um, yeah. and then, yeah, tell us that. Um, so I used to work at a hedge fund called Bridgewater Associates, uh, largest hedge fund in the world. Yeah. And I was an engineer there and we were building out systems that helped optimize the workflow for traders. 
And traders are some form of salespeople, if you really think about it. They're trading commodities and selling in the market and buying in the market. And when I kind of left Bridgewater, which was a really tough call for me, because to me, at one point, it was the dream job. Yeah. Uh, amazing place to work around some of the smartest people I've ever had the privilege of working with. Uh, when I left, I knew I wanted to build a company and because I wanted to have more impact in the world. If you work in finance, um, you, you kind of impact the employees within that financial institution. You don't really have a broader impact into the markets as much as you think. Like, it's just all obfuscated. So I wanted to build a company that I knew I could impact a lot of people. And I knew I wanted to create a product that people loved using every day. Mm-hmm. It wasn't going to be like an HR tool or anything like that. Uh, and that's all I knew. And I kind of went about bumbling around with trying out a bunch of different ideas. And Tout was one of the ones that I just created, honestly, for myself. Um, I knew that the type of optimizations I created for trading software, and I found myself as a founder as I was working on different ideas, trying to email someone, trying to call people, trying to follow up, whether it was advisors, investors, mentors, all of it, customers. And I found myself having this problem of writing very similar emails over and over. It was as simple as that. And so over the course of a weekend, I essentially built Tout while I was working on a very different idea, thinking that idea was going to be a billion dollars. And I built Tout as this tool that I needed for myself. And as I built it and I got so much value out of it, I was able to copy over a bunch of the code from this other big product I was working on and move it over and just release it. And so I launched Tout over the course of a a weekend. And within day one, and it was simple, you just typed in an email address, typed in a name, and you had a couple of email templates and you just sent it off. And you actually had to log on to toutup.com. And that first version, you couldn't even bold a word. It was just plain, simple text emails. And once you sent it off, it would tell you when someone looked at it, if they clicked on the link, and if they replied. Um, Pretty straightforward. And so I released it, and within day one, uh, people started signing up for it. It became number one on Hacker News. I wrote this blog post about how I built it over a weekend, and here's my idea, one of those show HN things. And it became number one trending on Hacker News. And that got me a bunch of signups from startup founders and early entrepreneurs. And then... um, I knew that the type of people that would use this also use a CRM. And so one of the things I did very early was I integrated with HiRise, which is that 37-signal CRM. Mm -hmm. And I sent them an email saying, hey, by the way, I built this thing, and it integrates with you guys. Would love it if you, like, share it. And so they actually featured it on their newsletter on day two, and that got me a whole bunch of more signups. And by day three, it was generating revenues. And because I had built out this billing system and these upgrade flows for this other product I was trying to get off the ground, um, it was super easy for me to add billing. I thought maybe I'll do $9 a month. And a good friend of mine, Lauren, she was like, no, this is probably for salespeople. Every deal is worth so much to them. You should do 30 And I said, 30 is outrageous. She said, no, just do 30 What do you have to lose? This is like your side thing idea, right? I'm like, yeah, you're right. And so I just put 30 and people just started paying $30 a month for this text box that doesn't even let you bold a word, but lets you send emails <laughs> off of templates and track them and log it in the CRM. And truth be told, I actually ignored Tout for the first six months of it. It just ran and just kept generating more money. It started generating $1,000 a month and then $1,500 a month, $2,000 a month. 
And I just kept it. I'm like, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know where to take it. And finally, I got to talking with my friend Pete. He's my original co-founder for the company I started in college, and we got acquired. And he said, you know, on one hand, you've got this other product you're trying to build that helps people communicate and tries to replace email. And no one uses it, and you've been trying for a year. It's just not going anywhere. On the other hand, you're charging $30 a month on something that makes email just a little bit better. <clears throat> and people are signing up and people are using it. I don't know, man. Maybe you should just like double down on this. And that was profound because I think when you're starting off, you, can, you can't really change people's minds. You, what you need to do is put something out there that kind of augments how they already think and makes it a little bit better and hopefully give enough value so you can charge for it. Um, and that's what Tout did, and it just took off because of that. And so finally I cut down the other thing. Behavior changes are hard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can't go against the norm and the average. And like you have to kind of Trojan horse into what they're already doing and then show them a better way, and then you can charge for it. That's the thing I believe in B2B all the time. Um, it's got to work with how their current frame of thinking is. And then if there's if they if you can get them to a better spot, then you earn the right to shift their thinking and and charge even more after that. And so I doubled down on Tout, and over time we started to realize that there was uh, a huge market with sales productivity and sales engagement. We were the pioneers in the category, and we kind of grew from there. And but it started from a very simple idea that I just a tool that I just needed for myself while I was working on this other idea that I thought would be worth a billion. What did you do? You did not find someone else making or solving this problem for you? Is that, or did you do any market research or you just built it because you could over the weekend? I, no, I did some. There really wasn't anything just quite like it. And there were email marketing tools, but there weren't anything that really catered to the people that are forging human connections on a one-to-one -one basis in a meaningful way. So marketing, marketing emails, that, there were so many pieces of software. Mm -hmm. But for salespeople, biz dev people, PR people, HR people who have to communicate with a large group of people but in a personalized way over email, that just didn't exist. And that's one of the reasons why we found this specific hole in the market and were able to fill a void that existed and people started paying for it right away. So... Tell me the the whole like process because now you're doing awesome. You've got off to a good start. Did you raise money? I didn't actually. So one of the tough things for me was deciding whether to bootstrap my business or raise money. And so for that first year, it just kept generating cash. I was doing consulting, um, but one of the things that surprised me about Tout App was the vision for it just got bigger and bigger and bigger at every turn. It started as out as this email productivity tool, but as I talked to more people and as I honed in on salespeople, you started to see how there was so much more that you could be solving for. And so the vision got a little bit bigger. And so it's always funny to see the way I describe Tout App or the way I pitch Tout App today versus when I did, say, six years ago when I was in the New York Tech Meetup on 
on stage. So six years ago when I was on stage in front of 800 people, and that was one of the breakthrough moments for ToutApp because I had, I had been bootstrapping it, not really thinking about raising, but I went on stage in front of a large audience. Yeah. I just demoed it. And the demo was very simple. It's like, hey, how often are you writing the same email over and over? And that, that's really annoying, so you should use Tout. It has your best messaging. And when the next time you're emailing someone to follow up, you use you type in their email, you click on one of these buttons, and then you send it off. And by the way, uh, we'll tell you when they open it. That's it. That's how we sold or how how we communicated Tout back then. And today, so Tout app is actually a brand new product line that's been added to Marketo's overall platform. And over the next month and a half, I'm actually traveling through Chicago, Portland, um, Tel Aviv, London, Paris, and then Tokyo, because there's been so much incredible demand for ToutApp from the Marketo customer base. Mm. And so you go on this road trip, and you go and meet customers, and you explain to them, what is ToutApp, right? Like now it's in a whole different level. And today, the pitch is, Salespeople are spending their day engaging with customers, and they need to have the right message at the right time, and they need to forge meaningful relationships, and they need to be authentic, and they need to do that over email, phone, and social. And today, they're using it, they're doing this sort of ad hoc on their own using something like Gmail that doesn't understand what they do for a living. That's where ToutApp comes in. We're a system of engagement. We actually help you engage with customers in a meaningful way. and use the best messaging and assets and strategies so that every salesperson is successful. It's kind of funny, right? Like you start off with this dinky little feature with a button and a template and, a, and, and you send it. And over time, the same core features build on each other to form and frame a message that goes from being something that worth, that's worth $30 a month to something that an entire Fortune 500 company would purchase for their 1,800-seat uh, sales team and that would probably be a half a million to a million dollar deal. So that's the progression that you see with startups where it starts off as a toy and a tool and kind of silly. Even to, even to me, I ignored it for a year. Mm. And here we are six years later, and we've obviously built a lot around it, but the core idea is very similar, and the messaging is so much more higher level. And then it becomes a movement, right? It's like we're leading a movement about how Systems of record, which has been kind of the main thing for the last 20 years, are being disrupted by systems of engagement. Mm -hmm. Systems of record make you do data entry. Systems of engagement help you do your job while extracting data out of the process. Mm -hmm. So, like, But it all started with a simple idea of a template and a button. And as a founder, you don't really always know. And we did end up raising money, because going back to your question. Um, but that it was only after that New York Tech meetup where... I pitched the feature that way, and a few angel investors actually approached me. So I, we brought on Eric Reese from the Lean Startup. We brought on Esther Dyson. Um, we brought on Daniel Escapa, who's a little lesser-known angel, but really smart guy. Um, and they were they saw in tout something that even I couldn't see, and they said, mm -hmm. this can be really huge if you actually push this out and make it bigger, and you should think about raising. And that's when I started thinking about raising, because... I think some ideas are good for raising money and some ideas aren't. Mm -hmm. It's not always the case that you should raise venture money, but because there was a bigger vision there, because there was a bigger play there, it made sense to raise, and that's when I went out to start raising. 
Very cool. So, you know, fast forward, um, that people, many, many folks started feeling that pain that you did when you started Tout Up. And that market got really crowded, meaning a lot oh, yeah. of other founders um, started to solve the problem in many different ways to increase sales efficiency, to help the sales team get better and better. Um, how did you feel at the time? When <laughs> <laughs> A very appropriate question. <laughs> very astute. How did I feel? Um, really pissed off, to be honest. I think that, <laughs> and I'll break that down for you. I, I mean, that's my brute answer, right? So, first of all, imitation is a form of flattery. So that's one. That's what. That's um, how you console yourself. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that's like. Well, that's cool. Um, one of the things that I found in myself is I never considered myself a very competitive person, but uh, I realized when we started getting so much competition, I started to realize, wow, like actually, I kind of like competing. Like it drives <laughs> me. It makes me better. In fact. I don't think uh, – so one of our earliest competitors was this company called Yesware. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. It was founded by Matthew Bellows and a few others. And we competed head-to-head with them. Mm-hmm. They were enemy number one for a good amount of time. <laughs> enemy moved, number and, one. I love it. <laughs> yeah, and, and, then, and we moved on to other, other enemies number ones uh, later on in, in, in later years. But I didn't know I had that in me, that competitive <laughs> edge. But I loved it. And two things I realized. One, first I was pissed. Second, I'm like, second I realized, like, well, now you've got two companies trying to build a category. So that's good. Uh, and then you realize that there are two kinds of competitors. One that will just copy what you do and, other, and another that will really displace you and out-innovate you. And you've got to know who you're competing with. And early on, we were competing with people that were a little bit more fast followers. So what, where we found solace is, you know, we created this category. We are taking a first principles view on it. So as long as we keep innovating, we'll keep winning. And that did work for us for a good amount of time. And I think that companies go through ebbs and flows where innovation is possible and innovation isn't. And I think it's the founder's job to make sure you can keep innovating no matter what. Um, and when, when you start to realize that competition is a real thing and innovation is what wins, then I think you start to get a better handle on things versus just freaking out about the competition and being annoyed about how crowded it gets. So the first couple of years, two to three years, we were just, there was an enemy number one and every person in the company knew it and we hated their color and we loved (laughs) taking customers away from them. And that spirit, I think, actually propelled the company forward even more and made sure that we were always pushing ourselves to build the best product and have the best customer experience and have the best run company. Um, And I think that's the biggest thing that I learned from it. Now, it did get to a point where, and really I think that was one of the impetus for, like we had very smart board members and we had a very frank conversation. So when they said cut down to 15, they, they weren't saying the wrong thing. We all got to the conclusion that, wow, this is a very, very crowded category. And it's not clear if it's a category or a subcategory. 
Mm-hmm. And it's not clear who's going to win. And mm-hmm. and the bigger investors, the later stage investors, the ones that do Series C and D, I know all of them. I talk to them about it all the time. And they said, I don't know who to pick. And I'm not sure if there is going to be a big winner here. Mm-hmm. And so we had a frank discussion. And I think when markets get overly crowded, you have you have got to start thinking about whether you're playing chess or playing checkers and how you're going to make the move that helps you rise above. You can't just compete head-to-head when you've got five competitors. When you've got one to two, maybe three, or two and a half, that's cool. You should compete head-to-head and continue to build. If you've got five or six, and every new YC batch has two new companies that are in the same space, and you're like, do you know like there's two startups in the same cohort that trying to go after sales and marketing? That's when you're like, okay, maybe we should reevaluate our strategy here. And I think that's where we got to. We said, you know, there is a real business here and we can continue to grow it, but this will totally dominate in the space if it's part of a larger scaled company. And so we took a very specific view on continuing to fund this and try to grow this is not the way to win in this category that's so crowded. The way to do it is to rise above and join forces with a larger player and then take it to market. Hmm. And and I think that founders really have to be super honest with themselves at every stage of the business on where they're headed and what the likely outcomes are and optimize for it. Yeah. And so how did that sale decision happen? And what was that process like? Um, well, I think it's a, it's a bit that gets flipped. And quite honestly, if I were to go back, I would have been a lot more Uh, purposeful about relationships with potential acquirers. I I meet a lot of B2B founders today that say, oh yeah, no, that's a waste of time. We're going to IPO. And and I think that that's a flawed mindset because you should always have exit opportunities scoped out and relationships nurtured and forged. And even if, say, like a scenario where you're thinking about raising a Series C and you've got a term sheet, well, Having potential acquirers even put in a bid as you're considering a term sheet is a very powerful point of leverage for you. So you should always have that optionality. And that's even a mistake that I made. I didn't put enough effort into that. With that said, when we decided that, hey, the way to win in this space and service our customers is to join forces with the larger company, we started to kick off a specific process to talk to the key players in the space. And it made a ton of sense with Marketo, but it takes time to get there even if you've got some relationships. And so we talked to the key players. We had more than one offer. And at the end of the day, we saw the most synergy with the vision that Marketo had, which is why we went for went for their deal. But it takes time. And you have to forge relationships with Corp Dev. You have to forge relationships with the product leaders, the executive team. You have to understand customers. You have to see if there's overlap in customer bases. All those things are very, very important. And the earlier you think about it, the better. And the more runway and time you have, even if you're thinking about M&A, the better. And for us, uh, you know, investors wanted to make a specific move, and so did I, and we were very purposeful about it. And we time-boxed it. And so we feel really good about the outcome. But it's one of those things where if we started earlier and just had that as optionality, it would have been even more powerful and probably like our lives would have been a little bit easier and less scary. Yeah. You know, the point you made about forging those relationships, 
it's a very intuitive point. You just know you have to network and meet people. But when you're in the middle of building a company and you have to go to yet another VC dinner or something of that effect, which, you know, you have to pick, grow your revenue or go to a yet another dinner and for, and maybe these relationships will work out down the road. How do you balance that? I mean, I know it's looking back, it's always good to say, I wish I I was thoughtful about this sooner. Uh, but yeah. it's, it's a little, I, I, my companies are seed early stage companies. I, you know, trying to make it for the next round of funding, next metric, next quarter um, numbers and things like that. I think I, you know, it would be kind of like, if you were to talk to yourself six years, five years, four years ago, to kind of just start thinking about this, what would you do differently? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I'm not sure I would change a hell of a lot that I did. I, I prioritize revenue first. I was a little bit more of an inward-facing CEO and founder than a lot of other founders and CEOs. Um, I, I deprioritized going to conferences or TechCrunch Disrupt or anything like that. Um, I got dinners with people if it was a one-to-one -one thing. I wouldn't go if it was four founders talking to each other while the VC takes notes. Um, so I was very discerning about who I spent time with and how I prioritize my time as opposed to growing revenue. And I think that that is what I would do again and again and again and again and again. I, I don't think I would change that sort of prioritization because if you've got revenue, especially in B2B, uh, I totally don't understand B2C. I wouldn't even know what to tell you on that. I don't yeah. even know the playbook for that. For B2B, I think revenue trumps revenue and growth trumps everything. And so that was always priority number one. Um, however, I think that there are certain cases where things just take time. And let me explain what I mean by that. Um, if you've got crazy revenue and growth, it's not going to take a lot of time for you to raise funds. Uh, it's not going to take a lot for you to raise money from VC. So if you're killing it, like it doesn't matter. You could, they could have never met you. They'll compete on the deal because you're one of the 15 hottest deals that year, or, or at least that's what people will believe. If you're somewhere in the middle, that's where the relationships and the longer data points come into play. So from a fundraising perspective, if you think you're going to be killing it and you can just focus all your time on revenue, you're going to be killing it, then great. If you think your metrics are going to be good but not great, then you should put a little bit of time into forging relationships because that's my, that might be what it takes to get them over the hump and get you to still invest. So that's a call you're going to have to make for investing. When it comes to M&A, I think that regardless, you're going, it, it's always going to be lead time and relationship time, no matter what. No one's going to just come in and, and just because you're growing like crazy, they're going to say, oh, I'll buy right now. Yeah. It's still very relationship driven. And if I were to go back, I think that nuance was something that is not obvious. And so carving out some of your time to spend time with the product leader of the three most likely acquirers, grabbing coffee, talking about their future roadmap, will A, forge the relationship with that person, but also B, will help you understand how your future roadmap can shape so that you can be strategic to them down the line. 
not to sell, you could still go after the IPO piece, but to have optionality of some sort so that um, you can use it as leverage or you can use it as an option, a real option down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, that's, that's the part that requires you to kind of pause sometimes and be more thoughtful, which, mm-hmm. which uh, you know, there's a lot of things in a business that you have to think through and be thoughtful about. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. Lot. It's hard. I mean, like, it's a, it's a really difficult optimization problem, right? And I think that you, you said it great. I think you can get better at the optimization problem if you pause every now and then, which I don't think is entirely obvious to people. You're working all the time, 24-7 is actually bad. At some point, you're creating more bugs than features. <laughs> in life i like that <laughs> yeah that's a good analogy on that note i want to say thank you this is so insightful i feel like we need a part two for this conversation and dig a little bit more deeper and give you a little bit more of a hard time um and talk a little bit more about like your um, awesome salespeople gifts <laughs> that i see you post <laughs> on uh <laughs> <laughs> on Facebook, I, I, not to be cryptic, but um, maybe let's end on a high note. I see these amazing gifts you give give your good uh, sales performers. Um, is it like a good nice bottle of? <laughs> it's uh so yeah. If you close a six figure deal at Tout App, we give you a bottle of Dom. Yeah, uh, that's, that's uh, pretty much how. It... <laughs> But nice. it has to be a six-figure deal, and there has been someone that closed a ninety-six thousand-dollar deal. Oh. And we debate, and we said, "Sorry, you don't get a bottle of gum. Uh, oh, it has no. to be a six-figure deal." <laughs> oh no, burn! To maintain the integrity of 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 the of the celebration. <laughs> well, thank you so much, TK. This has been awesome. Um, and how do people awesome. follow you? Uh, you can go to my blog. It's, uh, I'm sure you'll link to it, but it's tweetcater.com. Or actually, I'm starting a whole new thing called Unstoppable. It's uh, retelling the story of everything I've learned from running a B2B company. So you can go to getunstoppable.com and you'll have my blog. Uh, it's going to be a YouTube channel. And I'm, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So you can follow everything there, getunstoppable.com. I I bet you're unstoppable. And you guys can follow me on at Twitter. Sorry, on Twitter at at Shruti. Thanks so much, folks.